kids praise K through four. If you want to send them, parents, go right to the back, and they will exit out, and get them at the end of the service. I see Miss Julie back there, and so there they go. As they go today, we're going to pray for them. You don't have to wait. You can still go, but we're going to pray for them. So let's go to the Lord together, ask Him to bless our time in the Word, but also ask Him to bless this generation of our church. Father God, we give you praise for this day. A glorious day is coming, God, but there's a taste of glory in this. We are getting to experience hearing the voices of the saints lifting their songs to you. The, the word of Christ dwells in us richly. We are able to admonish one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. I pray that the peace of Christ would dwell in our hearts, Lord. And I pray, Father, that you would be exalted in this time as we're in your word. I pray, God, that you would help me to be out of the way and that you would be in the way, God. It would be all about you. I pray that I would be forgotten, you would be remembered as we go about the teaching uh, portion of our service here, as we break the bread of your word open and we are nourished by it. But Father, I also pray right now for our kids as they go that they would be nourished by your word as uh, they go and they learn. I pray, Father, that they would have strong friendships with one another in our church. I pray that they would look up to the other generations in our church and that they would be able to see godly men and women walking in your statutes, walking in your precepts, that they would see the wisdom in that, that they would long for that, that you would keep them from the way of fools, and that you would have them lean not on their own understanding, and that they would trust in you with all of their heart. And I pray, Father, that you would raise up this next generation of believers here at Seaford Baptist to be even more faithful than us, that they would surpass us in godliness, surpass us in biblical wisdom and knowledge, surpass us in evangelistic fervor, surpass us in... Uh, Christian love for one another, that you would raise up leaders from this generation, that you would keep them safe, Lord, from the, the, the enemy who prowls like a lion, is wanting to destroy, that you would keep them safe from the world that would want to suck them up, Lord, and spit them out uh, as, as uh, wolves in the world, as, as, as lost uh, goats in the world, Lord, who would not want to see them be sheep. I pray instead, God, they would indeed be sheep. They would be little lambs that follow you and become strong rams. I pray, Father, that uh, you would bless this generation of our church. We thank you for them. We do not take them for granted. Bless their parents as they raise them up as well, Lord. Bless their grandparents and help all of us to be a part of seeing them grow up into maturity and godliness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible, you can open it to Acts chapter 11. We are picking up right where we left off last week. A huge, huge thank you to Bobby High. did an awesome job last week. And um, I know he was very blessed to be here. So thank you all for the support you showed him. And we hope to have Bobby back to talk to our students some at some point. We hope to have Bobby back to talk to the church. He told me he's willing to come anytime. So um, we love Bobby. But he did an awesome job. He put the ball on the tee for me. This week, as we jump into chapter 11, starting in verse 19, while you're turning there, I want to tell you that recently I watched a show about people who eat the hottest possible peppers they can find on the earth. 
These are people who are not content to eat a Carolina Reaper and call it a day. They're pushing the limits and they're trying to create things that are even hotter than that. They're crossbreeding peppers. They're coming up with stuff that uh, reaches an even higher point on the Scoville scale. The Orange Gusher, the J.P. Piranha, the Naga Viper. One of the premier pepper growers in the world is this guy named Troy Primo, and he contends that his seven-pot Primo is actually the hottest pepper on the earth. Whether or not he's right, that is up for debate. What is not up for debate is that his pepper farm in Louisiana is considered to be one of the best in the world. Why? Why is it so good? Well, a lot of it comes down to the soil. The soil of Louisiana is a blend of sand and silt and clay, and it drains better than most soils drain. It stays moist. It is rich with nutrients. It has a loose, crumbly texture. And when you combine that with Louisiana's warm and humid climate, you have the perfect environment for growing peppers so hot that when you eat them, your brain releases the same chemicals it releases in near-death experiences, which is why when people eat these peppers, they panic a lot of times. So that's what's in the soil of a premier pepper farm. But what is in the soil of a great move of God? Peppers need nutrients and moisture and the perfect blend But what about a landmark move of God's power? This morning we have the opportunity to consider this question. We have the opportunity to bend down and examine the soil of a remarkable move of God's saving arm. We have the opportunity to bend down and see what is present in the soil out of which comes the home base for Gentile mission work. We're going to look at the Spirit's work in Acts 11, and we're going to actually compare it to what we saw in Acts chapter 2, and try to draw some parallels that clue us into the rich soil that a dramatic work of the Lord springs from. And as we do, we'll see three things that stand out. Divinely empowered witness, godly leadership, and Christian love. So let me read for us our text, Acts chapter 11, starting in verse 19. And those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. 
Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone, according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. In Acts chapter 2, we saw the Holy Spirit of God fall on the church, a church made up of Jewish believers, and they spoke in tongues as evidence of the power they received. And this is called Pentecost. And as the narrative of Acts unfolds, you see the gospel invading the Jewish world, just as Jesus promised in Acts 1.8. The church are a witness in Jerusalem and in all Judea. And there are these profound effects as the Spirit of God moves through the church's proclamation of the good news. You see, in Acts 2, verse 41, Peter preached the gospel, and around 3,000 people become Christians. Acts 2, verse 41, so those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And then there's this amazing description of this infant church. And how they are following the Lord. Acts 2 verse 42 says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God for having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So everything's going great. Now in Acts 8 and 9, we find out about this great persecution that comes upon the church at the hands of Saul of Tarsus. There's some persecution along the way before Acts 8 and 9, but after Stephen's death, which is mentioned here in Acts 11 verse 19, the persecution is not just coming down on the leaders of the church, the whole church is experiencing it, and they're scattered. Saul of Tarsus leads the charge, the church is scattered out, Satan meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. Because what happens is as they're scattered, what do they do? They take the gospel with them in all of Judea and also to Samaria. And as you get to Acts 9 verse 31, there is a period of peace that has come upon the church. That, that period of persecution comes to a close. And Luke says the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So that period of persecution ends, the church is at peace, and the gospel is spread throughout all Judea and Samaria. Then in Acts 10, we saw the gospel move beyond Jewish boundaries as Peter takes the witness of the word to Caesarea and he preaches to Cornelius and his family. And they believe. And what happens? Holy Spirit falls on them just as he did the Jewish church in Acts 2. How do we know? Because Cornelius 
and his company speak in tongues just like the apostles did at Pentecost, making this a sort of Gentile Pentecost, if you will. And Luke wanting us to see that the same Spirit that invaded all of Judea and Samaria through the witness of His church is now invading the Gentile world through the witness of His church. David Peterson explains how Luke has arranged his narrative to prove this point. The next stage in the progress of the Word, Peterson says, is neither organized by the church in Jerusalem nor directly inspired by Peter's preaching to Cornelius. Nevertheless, the flow of Luke's narrative suggests that the theological outcome of Cornelius' account is the formation of an ecclesia, meaning a church, outside of Jerusalem and among non-Jews. In Antioch, we meet the first church that is made up of Jewish and Gentile believers together. And so if you look in the soil of the great work that happens after the first Pentecost, you're going to see that it sprang up from a blend of good and praiseworthy things. Divinely empowered witness. Peter standing up in the power of the Spirit in Jerusalem, lifting his voice, preaching an expository sermon from Joel in the Psalms. People are cut to the heart. They repent. They are baptized. So there's divinely empowered witness. There's godly leadership. Peter and the apostles are teaching the church. Later, men are selected for deacon-like work. Men like Stephen and Philip. So there's divinely empowered witness, there's godly leadership, and there is Christian love. It's all over that Acts 2, 42-47 passage. There's fellowship. They're breaking bread with glad and generous hearts. They're praying together. They're holding all things in common, meeting needs as they arise. And the result is, is that the Jerusalem church becomes a center for mission work to the Jewish world. Now, in Acts 11, we have a similar blend in the soil as a new mission center is established and the church begins to penetrate the end of the earth. So let's walk through this passage and see what's in the soil. Consider it for our own ministry here at Seaford and its importance. We begin with gospel proclamation. Number one, a great move of God grows from divinely empowered witness. A great move of God grows from divinely empowered witness. Like Peter in Acts 2, we have gospel proclamation happening here in Acts 11. Unlike Acts 2, it's not coming from the mouth of one of the most recognized leaders in all of church history. It's not coming from the man that Jesus looks at and says, on you, I I will build my church. On a confession like yours, I'll build my church. Instead, it's coming from anonymous brothers. Anonymous, faithful brothers. Luke mentions this scattering that took place in Acts 8.1 because of Saul's persecution after the martyrdom of Stephen. And he says, some of the dispersed move out as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. Phoenicia was the sliver of coastal plain on the Mediterranean to the north of Samaria, the north of Galilee. You may remember the names of the cities Tyre and Sidon. This is where they were located. 
Cyprus was a small island off the coast of Syria. This is where Barnabas was from. Someone we'll talk about more in just a few moments. Antioch was in Syria, about 18 miles inland from the Mediterranean Sea. After Rome and Alexandria, Antioch is the third most prominent city in the entire Roman Empire. Its population is disputed. Some say it had a quarter of a million people living in it. So think Richmond, Virginia, where I went to college. Some of it had half a, some people say that half a million people were living there. Think Virginia Beach, where I'm sure some of you are from. Bottom line is, this is a heavily populated metropolis in the Roman Empire. It was so important that the Roman governor over the entire province of Syria usually resided there. Now initially the gospel is just taken to the Jewish people in these cities, but verse 20 tells us that some of the men from Cyprus and Cyrene came to Antioch and they start preaching to Hellenists or to Greeks. The word Hellenist can sometimes just refer to Greek-speaking Jewish people, as it does in Acts 6, but Luke seems to have something else in mind here in Acts 11. In verse 19, the gospel is only going to Jewish people. So it seems like as the gospel in verse 20 goes to Hellenists, we're not talking about Greek-speaking Jewish people. Instead, Luke's saying that now the gospel is going beyond Jewish people in this area. It's going to full-blown Greek people, full-blown pagan Gentiles. And just as Peter stood up in Acts 2 and preached in the power of the Spirit, and 3,000 were cut to the heart and repented, we have a great number turning to the Lord in verse 21. And this is phenomenal. This is the Great Commission coming to pass. These anonymous brothers are leading a multitude to Jesus through their witness. The question is, why? Why is their witness so powerful? Why are they so effective in their ministry? Well, the answer is in verse 21. The hand of the Lord was with them. That's why. In fact, we would say that any great move of God that's ever come about is because of this. Because the hand of the Lord was with His people. Because just as Jesus promised, until the the commission is fulfilled, He will be with us to the end of the age. One of the greatest movements of God that we have seen in our nation was the Great Awakening, which started in New England in the 1740s. It's mostly associated with the names of ministers like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield. But like the movement of the gospel in Acts, there are unheralded heroes that played their part in anonymity. Joseph Tracy wrote a book called The Great Awakening. In 1841, he painstakingly compiled a record of what occurred in the 100 years earlier in colonial America. It is mostly first-hand eyewitness accounts. One of the unsung heroes who's probably anonymous to you until this very moment is the Reverend George Griswold. He was the pastor of a church in Lyme, Connecticut, but he was a gifted preacher and so he would venture out into the surrounding towns and he would use his gift of preaching. Here's an account from his journal regarding an experience in New London, Connecticut where he was on one of his evangelistic trips. He said, on Monday, I preached again at the meeting house, and there seemed to be a great pouring out of the Spirit of God, and many in distress 
And one, hopefully, had a discovery of Jesus Christ and received consolation. On Monday evening, I preached again in the meeting house. And the distress of the people was so great among them that tarried in the meeting house, the space between the public exercises, that I was obliged to speak to the people, to compose and still them, or I could not have had opportunity to preach to them. Though there were outcries in the time of public exercise, yet not so much as to interrupt the public worship. Within the space of about two or three minutes after the blessing was given, there seemed to be a wonderful outpouring of the Spirit. Many souls in great distress. And about three or four hours were spent in counseling the distressed and praying with them. If the old colonial way of writing confuses you, just let me summarize. He preached on a Monday afternoon at this church in New London. God's Spirit was poured out. Seems like one person was converted. That night he went and he preached again. And the people listening were so convicted, they started like verbally crying out during the service. He had to talk to them during an intermission in the service so that they would not keep the church from being able to carry on in worship. But as soon as services concluded for the night, within minutes, the Spirit moved many people to cry out again. And this brother spent hours sitting with them and giving them the gospel and praying with them. Now, I doubt that any of you knew Griswold's name before today. That name is a name you associate with a foolish character from a popular Christmas movie called Clark. We will never know the name of these anonymous brothers in this passage here in Acts 11 in this life. Just like many will never know the name of George Griswold. And yet, the hand of the Lord was with them. Church, most people will never know our names. If the Lord doesn't come back in the next 300 years, your own blood relatives won't know your name, most likely, unless the computer chip embedded in the base of their skull allows them to pull up databases from some ancestry service. That's a, it's mostly a joke about the computer chip. But who knows? we got this Neuralink thing happening, right? Who knows? But truthfully, like how many of us know the names of our great, great, great grandparents. Maybe a few of you who are really into that sort of thing, like you have an Ancestry.com account, you've got a family tree written out, but most do not. We are living our lives in historical anonymity. We are blips on a radar that most people will never look at. And yet God's hand is with the blips. And he will use them to preach the gospel and impact eternity. Today there are people in heaven because of unnamed brothers in Antioch. Because of long forgotten pastors from colonial Connecticut. In fact, we would say that throughout Christian history the remembered are few and far between. Most often, the redemption of Jesus is proclaimed by rarely remembered people. So let this encourage you. Let this compel you to be anonymously faithful. Be encouraged that God uses no names, forgotten proclaimers to bring about great movements of the Lord. And and you say, well, why does he do this? Why does he use anonymous people? Why does he use blips that no one will ever look at? 
so that he will be the one who gets the glory, so that he is the star of the show. Who is the central character in the first few verses of this text? It's not the anonymous brothers. It's the hand of the Lord. And that is how it should be. Go to the nations. Go to your neighbors. Be forgotten. His hand will be upon you as you carry the gospel to the world. Number two. Second thing we see in the soil. A great move of God grows from godly leadership. It grows from divinely empowered witness and it grows from godly leadership. We have a few names to talk about here in this passage. First of all, we have Barnabas, who was mentioned in verse 22. When the news of the converts in Antioch reaches the ears of the Jerusalem church, they say, well, we've got to investigate this. They send one of their best men. They send Barnabas of Cyprus. It's the third time we've seen his name in the book of Acts. The first time was in Acts 4, when Luke is describing the state of the church. Another one of those passages showing the incredible love in the early church. He's explaining how believers are selling off their property, giving proceeds to the church to be distributed as anyone has need. And he says this, Thus Joseph, who was also called by the uh, the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. We also saw him encouraging those suspicious of Saul's conversion to accept him as a brother in Acts 9, 27. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Clearly, Barnabas had an impeccable reputation. Verse 24 describes him as a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Very similar to the way Stephen is described in Acts 6-5. And throughout the rest of Acts, Luke depicts Barnabas as a masterful minister of the gospel. He's a leader that builds bridges. When there's a debate regarding Gentiles coming into the church and whether or not they need to be circumcised, Barnabas is one of the ones sent to Jerusalem to confer with the apostles and the elders there. When Paul and Barnabas have a disagreement and they go separate ways, it's over John Mark who wrote the Gospel of Mark. Mark apparently left the mission work in Pamphylia And Barnabas said, let's bring him with us on another missionary journey. Let's give him a second chance, trying to build a bridge. It was actually Paul who said, absolutely not. I'm not going to give this man a second chance. And so they parted ways over it. But if you read Paul's writings later on in his letters, he comes to accept John Mark again. And so in this way, Barnabas was actually ahead of Paul in the area of grace. A bridge builder. And here in Acts 11, he is sent as an experienced missionary, an experienced teacher, an experienced leader to go and see what's going on in Antioch. And upon arrival, he is glad because he sees the grace of God at work. He exhorts them to stay faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Even in his work of exhortation, Luke says a great many people were added to the Lord. Where Barnabas goes, good things seem to happen. He's a godly leader. In verse 25, 
Another sign of a godly leader is he doesn't try to do it all himself. Barnabas leaves to go get Saul. Last time we saw Saul was in Acts 9, verses 28 through 30. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem. Why was he able to go in and out among them? Because Barnabas convinced them to accept Paul as a brother, Saul as a brother. He went in and out among them, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord, and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Even before his conversion, Saul was a trained theologian of the highest order under the rabbi Gamaliel. Like, he got saved with a little bit of a head start, if you know what I mean. But he's continued to study now as a believer, all the while doing ministry in Damascus, Arabia, Jerusalem, and according to Galatians 1, in the regions of Syria and Cilicia. So at this point in time, he is a seasoned theologian, a seasoned missionary. And Barnabas wants the influence of Saul on this new group of believers in Antioch. And so once he finds him, he brings him back to Antioch. They do ministry together there, according to verse 26, for a full year. They meet with the church, the ecclesia, Luke says. Now this is important. Because this is Luke telling us we've got a church in Antioch now. We have a church in the third largest city in the entire Roman Empire. A pagan city. A city filled with Hellenists. We have an assembly of saints in the Gentile world. An assembly that is going to become the home base for the mission to the Gentiles, much like Jerusalem was the home base for the mission to Jewish people. Antioch will send out Paul and Barnabas in Acts 13 as a home base. In Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas come back to the base and they report about what has happened. In Acts 15, Paul and Silas are sent out. Where does Paul return in Acts 18? Back to Antioch. You can see how important this church becomes for sending and solidifying in the mission to the Gentile world. The twelve use Jerusalem as their home base. Paul uses Antioch. Clearly, this church, instructed and rooted by the teaching of Saul and Barnabas, has a major role to play in the early Christian movement. So much so, they're the first ones to be identified as Christians. The name literally means belonging to Christ. The Herodians belonged to Herod, so they were called the Herodians. The believers in Antioch belonged to Jesus. It was clear to everybody around them, so they were called Christians. And it doesn't seem like this is a name that came from within the church internally. Luke's wording implies they're being called Christians by the outside world. May have even been an insult to start. What the world didn't realize is it's no insult at all to a believer in Jesus for somebody to look at you and say, oh, you belong to Jesus. Yes, Not an insult. Actually, it's a testimony. It is a testimony to the faithful work done by Barnabas and Saul to strengthen this church. They become so closely identified with the teachings and the ethics and the person of Jesus Christ that the outside world is left with no choice but to look at them and say, those people belong to Christ. They're Christians. Then we have one more godly leader we can observe in verses 27 and 28. 
and to Agabus the prophet. Prophets were so active in the first generation of the church. Paul says that they, along with the apostles, lay the foundation of the church in Ephesians 2.20. So Agabus is one of these men who was a foundation layer. Agabus, like Barnabas, comes down from Jerusalem and he prophesies by the Spirit there would be a great famine over all the world. The NIV translates this over the entire Roman world, and I think that's a correct translation. The Greek phrase there in verse 28 is sometimes used to describe the whole world, but it was often used in the literature of the time to just describe the Roman Empire. Luke says that this happened in the days of Claudius. Claudius was the emperor from 41 to 54 AD. Now, Every time the Bible gets a historical figure involved, every time the Bible starts dating things, the Bible puts itself at risk of being wrong, does it not? In the sense that somebody could come along and go, well, the Bible says this thing was going to happen at this time, and it didn't happen. The thing is, is that every time the Bible does this, it's not wrong. Thus continuing to prove to us it is the true word of God. And in this case, Agabus was not wrong. During the reign of Claudius, there was a food crisis in Egypt, Syria, Judea, and Greece from 45 to 47 AD. The whole Roman Empire would have taken place about a year after Agabus came to Antioch. And the fact that Egypt was impacted by this famine shows just how much it did affect the empire because Egypt was the main producer of grain in the Roman Empire. For Egypt to be in famine means the rest of the empire is going to experience some level of famine. And so Agabus is correct. It's not the last time we're going to see Agabus. He's going to return in Acts 21. Much like divinely empowered witness, anywhere you see a great movement of God, you're going to find godly leadership. In the early church, you had giants like Athanasius, like Clement, who was a disciple of John, like Polycarp, like Ignatius, who was from none other than Antioch. In the Reformation, you had Luther and Melanchthon, you had Zwingli and Calvin, you had Tyndale and Rogers and Cranmer. In the Great Awakening, you had Edwards and and Whitfield and Mather and Brainerd. And as a generation of millennial believers... In the mid-2000s, agreed it would be a waste of time to spend our days on hobbies, seeing retirement as the ultimate goal. It was John Piper standing in the pulpit, heralding the word and saying those things to my generation. Those are just a, a handful of the grains of sand on a seashore of Christian faithfulness. But the bottom line is that godly leadership is crucial to a great movement of the Lord. And our church is no different. We need men like Barnabas to shepherd and pastor our people. To serve our church by leading So back in August, when I preached from Acts 6, I laid out a vision for us to set apart men who are called and qualified to serve our church in a non-staff pastoral role, unpaid pastors, men from among this congregation. Nothing has changed. It's still a huge need. We just can't fix everything at one time. 
This year we're working on our membership role, but in the months that follow, we'll turn our attention to the issue of seeking more godly leadership for our church from within our church. We need men like Stephen and Philip to deacon our people. Qualified men to lead by serving. We have a phenomenal body of deacons, but we need more who would commit to this important work. More hands to care for our widows. To care for our homebound people. To help with children's ministry on Sunday mornings. To oversee benevolence ministry in our church and to our community. We need more godly women to lead in our church body. Godly women of godly character who will count others more important than themselves. Who will in humility lead in the manner of Christ. But understand as we seek leaders, and as you hear me saying, we want to see leaders uh, raised up from within our church. That the godly people we're seeing in this passage, Paul and Barnabas and Agabus, these are not lightweights. These are serious men of God. They walked with Him. They were faithful to Him day in and day out. So we don't just say we need leaders. We say we need leaders who read their Bibles every day. We don't just need leaders. We need leaders who will blister their knees in prayer. We don't just need leaders, we need leaders who are humbly living before God according to His will, not according to their own will, their own agenda. And so on one hand, I I ask you to pray for this for our church. On the other hand, I say labor for this. Finally, and our third element in the soil, a great move of God grows out of Christian love. We see this in verses 29 and 30. In light of the prophecy of Agabus, the believers in Antioch decide to send an offering of relief to the believers in Jerusalem. One mission center helping another. Everyone gives according to their ability to give. They send it by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. This is important on a couple of levels. First of all, it establishes a familial relationship between Antioch and Jerusalem. We know from Bobby's message last week, there were people in Jerusalem that were struggling with the inclusion of Gentiles into the church. We'll see it again in Acts 15. Even here, we have Jerusalem sending Barnabas down, hey, go take a look at things, right? A little suspicious. The act of benevolence and love from these Gentile believers to the Jewish believers, is going to speak volumes to Jerusalem about the bond that they have in Jesus. It's going to say to Jerusalem, hey, brothers and sisters there, the blood of Christ is thicker than any sort of other blood. It's thicker than the bonds of Hebrew heritage. It's thicker than the bonds of Roman citizenship. Thaddeus Williams, who's book confronting injustice without compromising truth is probably the best book on justice that I have read I I highly recommend that book to you Thaddeus Williams says when it comes to salvation it is not white or black or brown or any other colors that matter uh, that matters except red is the blood of Jesus and the blood of Jesus alone that sinners from every skin tone find justification in the eyes of God and true equality in His kingdom, both here and for eternity. And that was communicated in this gift that went from Antioch to Jerusalem. Secondly, 
It doesn't just set up that familial love between the two churches. It also establishes a pattern for Christian giving that Paul will use in other instances when he's organizing a different collection for poor believers in Jerusalem. 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the church of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. As he may prosper, whatever you can afford to store up and and to save, put it aside, and then we'll get all that money together and we're going to take it to the brothers in Jerusalem who are suffering. 2 Corinthians 9, Paul is speaking about the same mission offering. He says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, He is distributed freely, He is given to the poor, His righteousness endures forever. Because God has given to us, according to His rich means in the Gospel, giving us the treasure of His one and only Son, we should give to one another according to our means. Because God gave His Son to die for our sins out of His good pleasure, we should not give under compulsion or reluctantly, we should give cheerfully out of our good pleasure. And as we do this, our giving demonstrates the love of God in Jesus Christ to the world. Jesus said, it's our love for one another that's going to be one of the major determining factors in whether or not somebody looks at us and recognizes us as someone who belongs to Christ, as a Christian, as a believer. He says, by this all people will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is a love offering that is going to be taken from Antioch to Jerusalem and it establishes the pattern of Christian giving for the next 2,000 years. We're still doing it. One of the most prominent leaders in the American Great Awakening was Cotton Mather. He often gets a bad rap for his association with the Salem witch trials, but in truth, he was so much more than a man who, like many, got caught up in that hysteria for a short time. In 1710, he wrote his Essays to Do Good, which influenced many people in the generation before Jonathan Edwards. In it, Mather said, Let us not be content to barely be Christians, but let us endeavor to be Christians indeed. The greatest glory of a Christian is to do good. You maybe have heard of the concept of pay it forward. Oprah did not come up with that. Cotton Mather did. Or at least, he's one of the first ones to write about it. Mather said, Let not good actions stop with yourselves, but let them be perpetuated. If they are of such a nature that they cannot be perpetuated, let them at least be imitated. Thus you will spread a happy influence beyond your own immediate sphere. Somebody does something good to you, if you can pass it on, if you have the financial means to literally pass it on, pass it on. If you don't have those financial means, then even though you may not be able to give money, go and give kindness. Go and give love in the name of Christ. That's what Mather is saying. If somebody in the church blesses you, let it be perpetuated. Imitate it by doing some sort of good for someone else in the name of Jesus. 
Because when we are selflessly giving of ourselves, selflessly giving of our time, our talents, our treasure, we do that with one another, the love in our community will be distinctly Christian. And the world will recognize that when they bump into us, whether it be at Upward Basketball or in a grocery store. On the other hand, if we're nasty with each other and selfish toward one another and we do not forgive, we're poisoning the soil rather than enriching it. The pepper growers of this world are out for heat. They want to create peppers with record-breaking impact on the Scoville scale that provide health-jeopardizing pain to the eater. That's what they're for. Well, as Christians, we're also out for heat. Not the kind produced by peppers. We're out to see the white, hot heat of passion for Christ in our church and in the neighborhood around us. Romans 12.11 says, Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. This is the sort of movement of God we want in our church. We want the heat of Christian zeal in our witness. We want the heat of Christian zeal in our leaders. We want the heat of Christian zeal in our love. We want that to lead to a fervency in the souls of those who do not currently know the Lord. We want to see their affections for the world to die. We want there to be a born-again affection for Christ to be stirred in them. Who doesn't want to see a great movement of God in Seaford? Who would not want to fill their journals with stories like Griswold? Well, we know what's in the soil of movements like this. Listen, it's not math. It's not cooking. It's not, well, we'll sprinkle in a little divinely empowered witness. We add to it some Christian love. Replace this exponent with godly leadership. Equals great movement of God. It's not that simple. As we saw in verse 21, ultimately great movements of God are down to the hand of the Lord. They're down to the sovereign will of Himself. We cannot, it's always funny when churches say, we're having revival. It's like, well, did you let God know? You're scheduling it? Right? I mean, and it's not something we create. It's from the Lord. But we can look to Acts 2 and we can look to Acts 11 and we can see that when He does move, There's some common elements in the dirt. So as the band returns to us and leads us in this final song, I want to ask you, how passionate are you about these things? How zealous are you to be a witness? How zealous are you to be a leader or to pray for your leaders? How zealous are you Are you for Christian love in our church body? We can't be passengers. We can't ask God to move if we're not willing to move ourselves. We can't ask God for more laborers to the field of harvest, but then say to God at the end of the prayer, but not me, God. I'm not one of those laborers. 
Let's pray right now for zeal. Father, we have bent down and we've picked up the soil and we've looked at it this morning and we see some common elements from Acts 2 and from Acts 11, from even the American Great Awakening, and we can look at other movements in history and we can see these things, God. We see the the hand of the Lord empowering witness. We see godly men and women leading. We see, Father, Christian love. Lord, if we've been passengers, if we've just been playing church, just kind of coming in and coming out on Sunday mornings, you know, just just checking that box. Lord, box checking is not going to bring about a great movement of the Lord. You're going to bless zeal. You're going to bless fervency. So down to a man, down to a woman in our church, God, I pray that you would stir up our hearts. That if we have been far from you, we would cry out in distress and we would not want to be far from you anymore. If we've been keeping a little secret sin over in the corner and we've been feeding it, We're not talking to anybody about it because we're scared to. That we would take that sin out from under the floor of our tent. We would bring it out into the light so that it could die. We would confess it to a brother or a sister or to a pastor. Walk through a process of getting that thing out of our lives. That we would not, Lord, just sit back and watch. That we would get up and go we want to see you move lord but we've got to move so these things we've talked about i pray that we would be passionate about them down to an individual would be passionate about them as a church and that we would see a great movement of the lord not so we could stand back and we could say look how big our church is or look at what we're doing and look at the success of this and the success of that we're a blip we're a blip it's for you We want you to be glorified through Seaford Baptist. We want you, God, to have worship in this neighborhood that you currently do not have. There are people sitting in living rooms right now, God, that we want them to know you. We want them to hear the gospel. There are children that are not in kids' praise right now, Lord. They're they're at home playing video games right now. They're not thinking about anything regarding youth, regarding the church. Their parents aren't thinking about raising them in the discipline, the instruction of the Lord. There's dwelling in lostness. We want to see a movement in these homes. We want to see them change. Whether they end up at our church or end up at another church, we just want to see people come to know you, Lord. So I pray that you would give us a zeal for this. Whatever it may cost us, we want to see a zeal for this, Lord. That we would prioritize you and your kingdom. We would prioritize your name being heralded by more. Move in our midst. Move us so that Lord, we would be the sort of soil that a great movement could come out of. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.